0: Hello everyone, it's the Sun Also Rises podcast and radio show on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and on the episode today, I'll be using speech to convey ideas to you listeners. So what that means in mechanical terms is that I'm creating sounds with my mouth while exhaling and resonating my vocal cords. This process makes various huffs and puffs and pops and, you know, all kinds of pitches and tones. And they make vibrations in the air, and those vibrations travel through the air. They are then, in this case, transmitted through radio waves or bandwidth to your speakers. And then when the vibrations reach your eardrums, your brain takes note of them and converts them into thoughts. This is an astonishing thing, really. It is a mind-boggling ability that we humans have because it means that we can transmit incredibly complicated and intricate ideas to one another. Just by resonating our vocal cords and using our lips and tongues to make these, you know, various hisses and huffs and tones, we can convey detailed knowledge from one mind to another. And of course we know that many of us speak different languages. There are actually some 6,700 languages on the planet today, and each one uses different sets of huffs and tones and other sounds, different vocabulary, and different traits and sentence structures. But one thing that we don't think about very often is that the specific language that each of us speaks influences quite a lot about the specific way we see the world. And it actually affects our thinking and even aspects of our behavior in more ways than most of us would think. One compelling study showing this came back in 2009 when a team of cognitive scientists from the U.S. studied a community in northern Australia. This was a small community called Porm Porau on the western edge of Cape York and the people there speak a language called Kuktaor. And the unique thing about this language is the way they talk about space and direction. Kuktaor doesn't have any of the relative words for space and direction like left and right, or forward and backward. Those are relative because, you know, who's right are we talking about? Who's left? Forward from what position? So instead of those relative words, In Kuqtai'or, they use cardinal direction terms, north, south, east, and west, if they want to talk about space and direction. So among these people, you often hear sentences like, hey, you've got a little beetle crawling on your northwest foot. Or, please move your plate to the south-southeast a little bit. It sounds very strange to the English-speaking ear. And I would actually have quite a hard time with a language of this kind because I hardly ever know the cardinal directions. You know, if if I see the sun and I know roughly what time of day it is, and then if I'm free to take an embarrassingly long time to visualize everything, I can usually figure it out. But if I can't see the sun and don't know the time, then I usually would have no clue. But it's different for the tayor speaking people. This is just how they always speak. And one obvious consequence of speaking this language is that it forces the people to be firmly oriented at all times. They have to have their bearings firmly about them at all times, and they become so adept at it that it becomes second nature, effortless. If they don't make it second nature, they can't really speak to the other people. Even just the standard greeting in the Kuktaor language is something like, which way are you going? And the usual answer should be something like, south, southeast, in the middle distance. How about you? So if a person doesn't know which direction he's facing and what his heading direction is, it's not really possible to even get past a casual hello. The influence that this trait of language has on the Kuktaior people is quite profound. I'll read a quote here from Lyra Boroditsky, who is one of the scientists who studied this. She wrote, quote, The result is a profound difference in navigational ability and spatial knowledge between speakers of language that rely primarily on absolute reference frames, like Kuktaior and languages that rely on relative reference frames, like English. Simply put, speakers of languages like Kuktaior are much better than English speakers at staying oriented and keeping track of where they are, even in unfamiliar landscapes or inside unfamiliar buildings. What enables them, in fact forces them to do this, is their language. Actually, we have a clip here of Lira Boroditsky explaining a little bit more about this. This is from a conference that she spoke at in New Orleans last year. Uh, In fact, people who speak languages like this stay oriented really, really well. They stay oriented better than we used to think humans could. Uh, We used to think that humans were worse than other creatures because some biological excuse, oh, we don't have magnets in our beaks or in our scales. No. If your language and your culture trains you to do it, actually, you can do it. There are humans around the world who stay oriented really well. So it's clear that this trait of the Kuktayor language ends up really enhancing the speaker's awareness of absolute direction, and their awareness of geographical and astronomical markers. It changes their brains so that they're always oriented. Their language really influences their thought in a significant way. Another compelling study on this topic came in 2012 when a behavioral economist named Keith Chin began to look at the ways different languages deal with the future tense. And it turns out that even among the major languages, there are some big differences. Here he is delivering a lecture about this in Edinburgh in
1: 2012. If I'm speaking in English, I have to speak grammatically differently if I'm talking about current rain, it is raining now, or future rain, it will rain tomorrow. Notice that English requires a lot more information with respect to the timing of events. Why? Because I have to consider that and I have to modify what I'm saying to say it will rain or or it's going to rain. It's simply not permissible in English to say it rained tomorrow.
0: So English is an example of what is called a strongly-futured language. It forces speakers to make a profound distinction between the present and the future. But not all languages are like that. Here's Keith Chen again.
1: A Chinese speaker can basically say something that sounds very strange to an English speaker's ears. They can say, yesterday it rained, now it rained, tomorrow it rained. In some deep sense, Chinese doesn't divide up the time spectrum in the same way that English forces us to constantly do uh, in order to speak correctly.
0: And the German language is similar to Mandarin Chinese in this way. A German speaker forecasting rain for the next day can naturally do so using the present tense. He can say something like "Morgen regnet das," which literally translates to something like "It rain tomorrow." So, even among the major languages of the world, there are some huge differences in the way the future is talked about. Some of them, like English, require a firm future marker. They make speakers encode a deep distinction between present and future events, while the languages like German and Chinese don't. And it turns out that this has a heavy influence on the way these different people see the world and behave in some specific ways. Here's Keith
1: Chen once again. You speak English, a futured language, and what that means is that every time you discuss the future, or any kind of a future event, grammatically you're forced to cleave that from the present, and treat it as if it's something viscerally different. Now, suppose that that visceral difference makes you subtly disassociate the future from the present every time you speak. If that's true, and it makes the future feel like something more distant and more different from the present, that's going to make it harder to save. If, on the other hand, you speak a futureless language, the present and the future, you speak about them identically. If that subtly nudges you to feel about them identically, that's going to make it easier to save.
0: Keith Chen has spent years studying how these linguistic differences make the speakers of the various languages think and act. And his research shows that if someone's language makes them separate the present from the future, then they're not as good at saving money, as he said there. They disassociate the future from the present to a greater degree. And they end up kind of thinking of their future self as more removed from their present self. And that makes them less likely to be kind to that future self. They're less inclined to put money away for that distantly removed person and they're also more inclined to eat and behave in other ways that are you know unkind to their future selves and chin's research says that this is largely because their language requires the speakers to encode that deep distinction between present and future And you might think that this sounds just like a national trait, more than a linguistic one. You know, maybe Germans are just more inclined to save money than Americans, not because of their verb tenses, but because they are German. I wondered about that at first too. And and I would say that probably could still play a large role, but Keith Chin spent quite a lot of time comparing speakers born and raised within the same country. You know, countries like Switzerland, for example where many of the people speak French, a strong future language, and many of the people speak German, a weak future one. And he found the same results as when he was comparing different countries. Speakers of the languages with weak future tenses engaged in dramatically more future-oriented behaviors than their strong-futured fellow citizens of that same country. ¶¶ One final quick example I'll mention of a study showing that language influences more than just the sounds we make to refer to something came back in 1953. That year there was a team of scientists with the Linguistic Society of America and they were studying the language of the Zuni tribe of Amerindians there in New Mexico. And the scientists noticed that the Zuni didn't have a different word for yellow and orange. They just had one word that covered both. Well, that alone isn't really anything special. Many languages don't have a, you know, a really sophisticated and precise name for every single crayon in the 120-count Crayola box. But what did surprise these scientists was to find out that the speakers of Zuni actually had a hard time distinguishing between these two colors. These people... They had the same cones and their retinas that the rest of us do. But since they had never learned words to distinguish between yellow and orange, their brains had a hard time telling them apart. So anyway, those are just a few examples of the way language influences thought and behavior. And there are numerous other findings that suggest this same thing. And I think this is a fascinating topic to consider, especially this time of year. Because if you've been listening to KPCG-FM for the last week or so, you'll know that the biblically commanded fall holy day season is underway. And the Feast of Tabernacles is happening right now. The Feast of Tabernacles is the time that pictures the world tomorrow or the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. And the Bible gives us quite a lot of very inspiring detail about this future time of unprecedented peace and benevolent godly rule. Scripture tells us that war will come to an end, you know, swords will be beaten into plowshares. The Bible also tells us that the nature of animals will be changed so that they no longer tear each other and people apart. It tells us that all people will keep the holy days. It tells us that the deserts of the world will be turned into lush gardens. And there's also a passage of Bible prophecy that tells us about language in that future time. Before we examine that passage, I'd like to take a few minutes to consider some background information that the Bible gives about all the languages of the world today. Genesis 11 records the history of mankind just a short time after the great flood. This was about two generations after that flood. And verse 1 of Genesis 11 says, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And then the passage goes on to say that the bulk of people gathered, at this time, somewhere in the area that is now Iraq. And they began collaborating on a massive project. There were no communication barriers to hinder their work, since they all spoke the same language. So the project was forging ahead at great speed. But the problem was that this project that they were collaborating on was a profoundly anti-God project. It was a tower, the Tower of Babel. uh, And they hoped that this tower would place them above the reach of any future floodwaters in case God decided to send another flood. So the whole purpose of the tower really was so that they could live their lives as they pleased, not obeying God's law, and still avoid the punishment that had come upon earlier generations as a result of their having broken God's law. Verse 4 explains that. But in response to this, God did something ingenious, something utterly original. He abruptly divided the people into separate linguistic groups. He presumably did this by instantly kind of rebooting the language centers, what's called the Broca's area, in their brains. Genesis 11 verse 7 says God confounded their language so that they wouldn't be able to understand each other. So there may have been dozens of language groups that were created that day. We don't know all the details, but we know that that was the origin of the parent languages of the 6,700 different tongues that are spoken around the world today. And over the generations, mankind has corrupted all of our thousands of languages more and more as time goes by. Each one today is filled with all kinds of impurities and you know, vagaries and perversions. Most of the impurity and ambiguity in today's languages just results in accidental confusion and miscommunication. But sometimes people even exploit these impurities intentionally. One famous example of this came back in 1945, after the United States had demanded that Japan surrender. And the U.S. threatened destruction if Japan wouldn't. Well, the Japanese government responded with a very interesting word, mokusatsu, It's an interesting word because it has two fairly different meanings. It can either mean, we withhold comment for now, so please give us a little more time. Or it can mean, we are treating your message with contempt. So two quite different meanings, one which would have uh, played well to the Japanese public um, and encouraged them to keep on fighting, and one which would have possibly kept the U.S. from taking strong action. Um, and it looks like the Japanese intentionally used this one-word answer that was very confusing because they intentionally wanted to confuse their enemy. They wanted to confuse them while they continued killing as many of them as possible. But anyway, the, uh, the American leadership didn't fall for it, and they authorized the atomic attacks that finally ended that terrible war. So that's just one example of a dangerous linguistic impurity. And all languages today have impurity in common. And in the first half of the show, we discussed the fact that the specific language that each of us speak influences a lot about the specific way we see and understand the world. And, and you know, we looked at how language can actually influence both our view and our behaviors in more ways than most of us would think. So anyway, to tie all this together, as I mentioned a moment ago, one of the inspiring details that the Bible tells us about the future age that mankind will enter after Christ returns to restore God's government on earth is about language. It says that there will be a pure language, one language, once again, spoken by all, that will be free of the ambiguity and flaws and darkness that corrupt the thousands of languages spoken in the world right now. Zephaniah 3 verse 9 talks about this language of the world tomorrow, and it records God saying, "...for then will I turn to the people a pure language." Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible says the word pure in this passage means clarified, made bright, carefully selected, and clearly polished. So that word is really packed with great power and meaning. Pure here signifies that beyond being universally spoken, this future worldwide language will be clarified, made bright, clearly polished. It will be pure. So if the language is pure, what will that mean for the speakers? I think that when you contemplate the way the Kuktaor language affects the thinking and even the abilities of its speakers. And when you think about the way Mandarin and German and English change the way their speakers see the world and the way they behave, and even when you consider how the Zuni language kind of limits the thinking of its speakers, then I think it's easy to see that a pure language could play a big role in purifying people's thoughts. This pure language of this peaceful future time will help to change the people who speak it. It will help to convert them into upright, law-abiding, and law-loving individuals. It will help them to live pure lives. Let's just read the, the rest of Zephaniah 3 verse 9 here. It says, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. So this Bible passage shows that during this future time, the people of the world will use their universal pure language to praise and serve the Creator God, a pure purpose for a pure language. The world-renowned educator, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, discussed what the world will be like during the future time when all men speak this pure language. In his booklet, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, He wrote, Today, all languages are corrupt. All languages have peculiarities of expression and grammatical oddities which cause misunderstandings and make them difficult for foreigners to learn. In most cases, even native speakers have problems with their own language. Many are in sad need of spelling reform, English being probably the prime example. Once the returning Christ conquers this earth... He will usher in an era of total literacy, total education, and give the world one new pure language. Think of the new era of good literature, good music, and of the avoiding of duplicated effort, misunderstandings through linguistic difficulties, and thousands of painstaking hours of translations. What an age it will be when all the world becomes truly educated and speaks the same language. End quote. So in the present world, rife with linguistic confusion that contributes to frictions and, you know, confusion, it's difficult to even imagine such a bright and harmonious future as the one that Mr. Armstrong described there. Right now, we can't even tell someone what day it is in English without calling out the names of the pagan gods, Odin and Thor. That's who Wednesday and Thursday are named for. In the world today, with languages that twist our thoughts and incorporate all sorts of pagan references. It's hard to envision it, but the Bible makes clear that the dawning of that age of pure speech and lasting peace is very near. And mankind's transition to that one language of purity will be dramatic. It will be a massive change, and it will affect more than just the words people use. Evidence shows that it will actually play a role in building godly purity in mankind. Well, we're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. Thank you for listening to the various hums and puffs and pitches and tones that I made during the episode today. I hope they were all received and understood with this miracle of language that we have Please send us your thoughts and comments with an email to tsar at kpcg.fm or you can message us on Twitter. The handle is at tsar underscore radio show. And you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher as well. If you don't have a copy of Mr. Armstrong's very inspiring booklet, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, please go to thetrumpet.com and if you click on the literature tab, We'll be happy to send you a free copy, or you can read it right there if you prefer. Thank you again for listening, and we'll leave you with some words from Gustave Flaubert. Human speech is like a cracked kettle on which we tap crude rhythms for bears to dance to, while we long to make music that will melt the stars.